I'm going to do a little self-introduction for those who weren't here last week. Those of you who were here last week, you can nap for a minute. Um, so I'm Dr. Greg Fraser. I teach at the Masters University. I'm a professor of history and political studies as well as the dean of the School of Humanities. Uh, I didn't mention this last week. I've only been at Grace Church since 1975, so I'm one of the newcomers. Um, and I'm a deacon here at, uh, at the church. And several years ago, Dr. MacArthur came to my office after having read my book on the religious beliefs of the founders, which is this. Uh, and he expressed a desire that everyone at Grace Community hear my presentation on the subject. That's how they're letting me do this. Um, as he left my office, he asked for a copy of the handout that you received today, which is what I went over with him. And it, we'll actually go over that today. <laughs> so if you brought yours from last week, that's good. If you didn't, you can get one today. And we'll talk about why it matters today, which is perhaps what some of you are most interested in. Um, several fellowship groups allowed me to make this presentation. He also arranged for me to do a seminar at the Shepherds Conference that year for the pastors. And he bought a copy of my book for every member of the university's board of directors. So for those of you who need that uh, sort of security blanket, Dr. MacArthur's on board with, what, with me doing this. Um, because there are so many people who are new to Grace Church, or relatively new, John, uh, I, wanted, I thought it was time to do the presentation again. Uh, and so that's why we're doing it. Let me also make clear, I feel very blessed to have been born in and to live in the United States. I believe it's the greatest and best country in the history of the world and has the best political system ever devised by man. Uh, I would not want to live in any other country on earth. But the United States is not perfect, and the system that was created was created by men, and therefore it's not perfect either. And the United States is run by fallen people and was set up by fallen people. And so uh, we need to keep all this in mind uh, when we think about the United States. Regarding religion and the American founding, um, my contention is that both the, the right, let's see, I'm looking at you, so you're seeing here. The right and the left are wrong about the founding and, and religion. The left says that most of the founders were deists or rank secularists who intended to completely separate religion from the public square to create a wall of separation between church and state. That is false. That's not at all true. A uh, wall of separation is a goofy notion uh, that the founders would not have embraced at all. They would have opposed vehemently and actually did. Uh, not that phrase because they didn't even think of it, but the concept of it, they opposed uh, vehemently. But the right says that most of the founders were Christians who based the founding documents on the Bible and intended to create a Christian nation. That is also false. Um, the truth, as is often the case, is somewhere in the middle, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Last week, and for those who weren't here last week, I apologize because um, you didn't get to, to hear this part of it, but last week we went through what the key founders said about Christ, about the Bible, about salvation, about who goes to heaven and how you get there, and various and sundry things, and all I did was show quotes from them. So you don't have to take my word for it. Um, and that was last week. So if you get a chance, you might want to, if you feel like throwing rotten fruit today, 
before you, you fight off that urge and listen to last week's um, lesson, which all I'm doing is reading what they, they said themselves. And they were very clear that they did not believe uh, as we believe. They did not believe in the fundamentals of Christianity at all. Uh, they didn't believe in the inerrant word of God and a number of other things. So that's all assumed for today. Uh, so for those who were last week, uh, you can kind of easily slide into today's. If you weren't here last week, it can still, uh, it's, it's a separate issue because what we're going to be talking about today is the evidences that are given by people who promote the notion that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. And we're going to talk about the evidence that they give and what I think is very problematic about it. And so uh, that's where we start today. Um, just uh, for those who were here last week, I just wanted to mention uh, there was a, a young woman with a question about the word providence. Uh, and um, they used the, we talked last time about God words, about how these uh, key founders, who I call theistic rationalists, they used God words in place of any biblical terms for God. And uh, one of the, the favorite God words is providence. Um, and by the way, the word providence is not in the Bible. Uh, and we know the concept of providence, but there are various concepts of providence. And when they used the word providence, they didn't mean the biblical notion of providence. Providence was a broad God word, a general term used back in those days in the 1700s, even by deists, deists who believe in an absent God who is not present or active in the world, talked about providence. And so uh, when you see the word providence, don't, don't read too much into it because it was just a God word, a, a means of talking about God in a way that wasn't specific. And also... We talked about George Washington last week. Uh, let me just mention that um, one of the claims about George Washington, uh, did I throw it in today? Well, let's see if I, th I think I probably threw it in today. Um, so we'll see. If not, we'll get back to it. All right. So having said that, let's launch into uh, the claims that are made uh, concerning trying to demonstrate that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. Many of these, not all of them, Many of these come from David Barton. Some of you may be familiar with David Barton. He's sort of the guru of the Christian America movement. Um, there have been three people who have tried to set up a debate between me and David Barton, including his scheduler, and all three were unsuccessful. Uh, his former best friend um, told me personally that he doesn't go anywhere where he doesn't control things. And so that's why he doesn't. But I don't know that for a fact. That's just what he told me. But be it as it may, uh, he is the guru of the Christian America movement. He talks about me on his website, which, by the way, what he says there is false. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but I, that's not surprising because most of what he says is false. Um, so uh, if you're a Bartonite, I, I'm sorry I didn't mean to offend you, uh, but I just wanted to identify much of what the, many of the claims we're going to be talking about today, that's where they come from. I, I might or might not mention it as we go along. All right, so let's begin. And I've, I've sort of grouped these evidences in some categories. The first category is irrelevant evidence. Uh, evidence that's irrelevant concerning the founding of the United States. 
one way or the other. And one of the key elements of this is the emphasis on the pilgrims and the Puritans. Um, now, you realize, of course, that the pilgrims created their colony 160 years before the American founding. 160 years before the founding. So what that has to do with the founding is interesting. It's questionable. In fact, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Their original vision, even if you say that what they created their colony to do, which, by the way, was to glorify God. That was their purpose, setting up the colony, to create a society that glorifies God. That vision was dead before the end of that century, before the end of the They were in the slave trade in producing rum, and they had engaged in two Indian massacres by, before we even get to 1700. And then it gets worse in the 1700s. So um, it's hardly a model colony, and why, is it, why, is it, why does it represent America? It wasn't the first colony. That might be a claim. If it was the first colony, they might, okay, the first colony, it wasn't the first colony. Jamestown was. It wasn't the largest colony by any stretch. Um, and so why the focus on this? Because they were the one that was and we're pursuing God's will. And so we're supposed to believe that that represents all of America because this one colony, this group of people, uh, had as their goal to create a godly society. Seven of the 13 colonies had no religious element at all in their founding. That's a majority, by the way, seven out of 13. Three of the other colonies were founded by dissenters from the Puritans. That is, they didn't agree with the Puritans, and they either left or on their own or got kicked out. And so you have ten colonies that uh, specifically didn't agree with the Puritans. So it's, uh, it's problematic to me to suggest that the Pilgrims and the Puritans found... And by the way, they didn't found America. They founded Massachusetts. That's an important distinction. Okay, um, there was another colony founded by Catholics, so perhaps we should say America was a Catholic nation if we're grabbing one colony randomly, or maybe Quakers. There was another colony founded by Quakers, so maybe America was founded as a Quaker nation. You can't just grab a colony randomly and then say that this represents the founding of America when the founding of America doesn't play, take place for another 160 years. So this, to me, is irrelevant evidence. Another piece of irrelevant evidence is the claim that the fundamental orders of Connecticut was America's first constitution and a direct antecedent of the federal constitution. Uh, one of the colonies, Connecticut, set up a legal system called the fundamental orders of Connecticut. And it was uh, centered on God and somewhat on the Bible, it was a constitution for Connecticut, not for America. Each of the colonies set up their own, and eventually as states, they set up their own. It applied to 500 people. The colony of Connecticut had a total of 500 people. Fundamental orders of Connecticut. I think it's a little pretend that it was first constitution. 
What about the founders? This is another huge issue. Who counts as a founder? When we say the founders did this, the founders did that. Now, I cautioned people who were here last week, you should, you should be careful when you hear someone say the founding fathers said or the founding fathers did. Because the founding fathers were a group of politicians who each had their own beliefs and their own views, just like politicians today. Can we say today, uh, the political leaders of America say, are they all on board with each other? I'm thinking not. Uh, because they're individuals, and the founding fathers were individuals. So the, the only way you can f- safely say the founding fathers did something was if you're looking at the Constitution, because they collectively created that. But in terms of what they believed, they were all over the map. Uh, and I talk about the key founders. I identified them last week. <clears throat> Those who I think are the eight key founders, the ones who had the most influence, the ones who had the most influence over the Declaration of Independence, its writing, and the writing of the Constitution, and then putting it into effect. Uh, Those eight key founders, Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and then for the Constitution, James Madison, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, Governor Morris, who most of you have never heard of, but he actually wrote the Constitution. If you see it in the National Archives, one of the originals, it's in his handwriting. He literally wrote it. Uh, And James Wilson. And then, of course, the 500-pound gorilla in the room, George Washington. So those are the eight people that I suggest are the most important, most influential of the founders. Those are the ones that I talked about last week when I said the key founders believed such as, because all eight of those guys really just beliefs. God, it's theistic rationalism. They were theistic rationalists, all right? And, and we'll get to the handout uh, later, but just to identify it. So, some people were founders. Not everyone who lived at that time was a founder, okay? Not everybody who lived at that time was a founder. There were few million Americans who didn't go to any of the meetings and write any of the documents. And one of the favorite tactics of the Christian America people is to get quotes from various people living at that time and then say the founders said such and such. And those people aren't founders. So let's talk about what constitutes the founders. For them, general all-inclusive statements are routinely made starting with the founders said, the founders believed, the founders wanted, and continual references to they. In fact, the founders were a diverse group of individuals who had various views about politics, religion, law, society, and everything else, as I've just gone through. Who counts as a founding father? Christian America advocates living at the time of the Revolution the writing of the Constitution, or within 50 or 60 years of those times as a founding father. And we'll see that in a moment. Examples. They say the American Tract Society was started by the founding fathers. It was started in 1825, 36 years after the founding, first of all. Secondly, If you go through the list of the founding members, no one listed as a society founder signed the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or played a significant role in the founding. Few of them were still alive in 1825, which we'll see more of in just a moment. 
Another claim is that this, this course court case, Vidal versus Dwyer, was at the time of the founders. It was in 1844. The last living framer of the Constitution died in 1836. So how, could, how can you call this case in the time of the founders when none of them are still alive and hadn't been for some time? John Quincy Adams is identified as a founding father. He was eight years old when the Declaration was signed. And he was a 20-year-old just out of law school at the time of the Constitutional Convention, in which he had no role, no part. The Founding Fathers established the New Order as a, case, a text for schools. Local school boards did this. It wasn't established by any national entity. It wasn't established by the Founding Fathers or any other national group. It was done by individual school boards. Local school board members are not founding fathers. Not everything done by someone at that time was done by the founding fathers. Another claim, and this is, um, this by the way is where uh, David Barton incorrectly talks about me. Another claim is 52 of the 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention were Orthodox Evangelical Christians. That's a claim that he makes in his American Godly Heritage, America's Godly Heritage video. The fact is, the only evidence is a table of contents. The table of contents in this book lists all 55 framers, and the table of contents lists their denominational affiliation. That's the evidence for this claim. 52 of the 55 were Orthodox Evangelical Christians because they belonged to certain denominations. Now, we know today that everyone who belongs to a denomination fervently believes in the theology of that denomination, right? We talked about that last week with Bill Clinton, for example, a Southern Baptist. We know that he is... If you actually read the book, there's precious little talk. It, what it is, is is a book of the lives of the, the uh, members of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting information there. Very little about their religious views and religious beliefs. So the claim is that because they, 52 of the 55 belong to certain denominations, they were Orthodox Evangelical Christians. And by the way... To get to 52, you have to count the two Roman Catholics. 86% of today's Congress meets this standard. So what's the problem? Now, on his website, I don't know, I haven't been to it for a while. You may have scrubbed it, I don't know. But on his website, he says that I say that he's wrong in claiming that 52 of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention went to Christian churches. That isn't what I say, because that isn't what he says in his video. In his video, he says that this proves they were Orthodox Evangelical Christians, not this that they went to churches. There was a group of um, 
I was contacted by some historians, Christian historians, who went to meet with David Barton, and each of us were asked to contribute something to this meeting, and mine was this particular thing. Mine was a review of his America's Godly Heritage video, and this was something that I pointed out was uh, incorrect, so that's how uh, he took my name, I guess, from that, from that meeting. All right. Um, Perhaps the most common tactic is to show that a particular founder was not a deist, to show quotes that indicated that he believed in a present God, and then to claim that because he was not a deist, he was a Christian. This is, this is as I say, probably the most common tactic, to go through and say, all, all the lefties, all the secularists, they say they were all deists. Well, look, he's not a deist. He believes in a present God. And then to the, draw the conclusion that he is therefore a Christian. How many of you know a deist? How many of you know neighbors who believe in God but aren't Christians? But they're not deists because there's this other category. This is a false dichotomy. If someone wasn't a deist, it doesn't mean they're a Christian. Think of a, I don't know, a Jew, a Muslim, a And so just to prove that someone's not a deist does not tell us that they were a Christian. And this is a classic thing. It's done in a number of the works of the Christian America people. They never get in to show you what they actually believe. They just say, see, he's not a deist, therefore he's a Christian. And I would argue that many of them, not all of them, many of them were theistic rationalists. And by the way, I mentioned this last week. I didn't mention it today. I should have. There were Christians among the founding fathers. I'm not here to tell you none of the founding fathers were Christians. They were all... There were were lots of Christians among the founding fathers, a lot more than deists. You have to get down, as I said last week, you have to get pretty far down the list of founding fathers to get to a single deist. And there's only three that I could name out of everybody that has ever talked about as a founding father. Only three deists. So deists were virtually non-existent, and there were more Christians than there were deists. There were a number of Christians, okay? But the ones who were most influential were theistic rationalists. Another claim, the founding fathers wanted to be sure that Christians held public office. Well, that's interesting, because what the founding fathers did, I believe, was the Christian. And in the Constitution, Article 6 of the Constitution, the framers specifically disallowed any religious test for office. Some in states wanted to restrict office holding to Christians, and they did in state laws, but they were not necessarily founding fathers. They were leaders in their states, but they had nothing to do with founding the United States. And it explicitly says you can't favor Christians. There's no religious test for office. Be very suspicious when a claim is made that the founding fathers established or founded or started something other than the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the national system of government, as I said a bit ago. Um, There's another claim about George Washington's miraculous survival in battle, and, and the argument is this demonstrates God's special hand on him. There's a story about 17 Indian chiefs saying that all of, their, all of their braves were firing at Washington, and he got X number of horses shot out from under him, and he had bullet holes in his jacket and whatnot, but he was, he was spared because God specially had his hand on him. First of all, 
the story about the Indian chiefs comes from Mason Locke Weems. Those of you who were here last week might remember that name, Parson Weems, who wrote this ridiculous hagiography of Washington, which is the origin of the cherry tree story and throwing a silver dollar across the Potomac and a number of the other stories about Washington that were uh, not true. This is another one of those stories that Parson Weems made up. Now, aside from that, let's say that, in fact, all these Indian chiefs fired at Washington and they couldn't kill him. It does not indicate a special relationship with God. Only Revelation does that. The Bible tells us who God has a special relationship with. Other than that, we only see And it's dangerous. Adolf Hitler claimed the same thing when there were multiple attempts on his life, including a guy putting a bomb right under the table where he was. And he survived. He said, see, God is not done with me. I'm doing God's work. It's very dangerous to make these kinds of claims when you don't have it up. And it, a lot of bad things can be done with it. Fortunately, in America, we didn't create... Um, some type of religious thing around George Washington or whatever, at least not too much. Uh, but it could have been bad. Oh, here's the one I was going to talk about. Another claim is that as he died, Washington said, take me off. This is another Parson Weems story. According to the people who were actually present at his death, including his wife Martha, he did not say anything because he couldn't talk. The disease from which he died gave him a sort of lockjaw, and he couldn't speak. Hours before he spoke, and he gave simple instructions to bury him, but wait three days before burying him. That was, by the way, a common fear back in those days. Sometimes people appeared to be dead. They really weren't, and they wake up in the grave. Um, And so he gave simple instructions to wait for three days before burying me, and that was all he said. And then at the end, he didn't say anything because he couldn't. The line that was quoted is from Parson Weems, the same guy who said that after Washington said these words, then the angels came and and carried him off to heaven. Martha didn't report seeing that either. Court cases. This is another uh, common thing that is used, court cases, to show that America was created as a Christian nation. One of the court said in Trinity versus U.S. that America is a Christian proves that America was founded as a Christian nation. This was 100 years after the founding. Why did the judges in this particular case have some particular insight into what happened 100 years earlier? How many of you know a whole lot about 1923? And what were the ideas that people were kicking around at the time and that they based certain things on and so on. Because there's no evidence in the record that they could have pointed to. So what you... This is also dicta. If there's any lawyers in the room, they can tell you what dicta is. But dicta is comments by judges on the side that aren't part of the actual decision. And they, they don't carry any weight in the legal community, which is why you've never heard of this before, because they don't carry any weight in the legal community. But what the Christian America people do is they scour things to find any kind of 
reference to something and then they take it and run with it. And if they have to, they change it a little bit to make it fit. Why should this statement be considered infallible or to reflect the views of the founders? What makes this court statement more reliable or accurate than the others? What makes it more accurate than the wall of separation notion that the court came up with? Which, by the way, isn't accurate. (laughs) What makes this one more accurate than it? It's just one court expressing their own opinion. Another court case, Vidal versus Girard, the claim is the court said you couldn't have a school that didn't teach Christianity in the Bible. Here's what the court actually said. Why may not the Bible be read in taught schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly and so perfectly? The court didn't say schools had to do this. They said the schools could do this back in 1844. And the emphasis was because they t- it teaches principles of morality, which we talked about last week. This was the key issue for founders and for those early generations. Religion teaches morality. Morality is needed for a free society. How do you get people in a free society to behave when you don't have an iron fist threatening them all the time? And the answer is morality. And where does morality come from? Religion. And which religion? All of them. Any of them. Which is why they granted freedom of religion. They required Christianity to be the religion. Why they had no religious test for office. The standard tactic of Christian America advocates is to move back and forth between Supreme Court cases and state court cases using the court said interchangeably to leave the impression that all are equally authoritative or binding. Many of the things that they quote are from state courts, and those are not considered uh, legally binding. Only Supreme Court decisions are legally binding. Stare decisis. Only Supreme, I just said this. Only Supreme Court cases are considered to be binding precedent. It's only proper to say the court said when refeeling, re, re, referring to non-dicta as well, when you're referring to something that the court officially said rather than something that a judge said on the side. When talking about court decisions with which they disagree, Christian America advocates complain that such decisions are just the opinions of those judges and that they're wrong. When talking about court decisions containing a statement they like, they treat them as infallible, unassailable, and reflective of the founders. It's just cherry-picking. Another category of things is misrepresentations, which is a kinder word for something else. Misrepresentations. Christian America advocates regularly and routinely take quotations that refer to religion or religious and substitute the word Christianity or Christian when they cite them. They take quotations and substitute the word Christian when they're speaking to churches and or they substitute the word Christianity for religion. Here's a claim. This is um, when they're trying to show that American education was superior back when God was the focus of education. When John Quincy Adams was 14, he received a congressional diplomatic appointment to rival for that time, for that type of education in America. The fact is, Adams studied in France and Holland the three years before becoming a secretary 
to a diplomat, nor was it typical. He was John Adams' son. None of the things that are in the original claim are true. It's not American education. He didn't get a diplomatic appointment. He was a secretary to a diplomat, and it wasn't typical. Being John Adams' son had something to do with it. Another claim, because of their Christianity, the founders wrote in the Constitution that the slave trade must end in 20 years in 1808. This is when they're trying to deal with how could these Christian founding fathers allow the slavery and and own slaves and a number of uh, ways to try and get out of that, and this is one of them. Well, they wrote in the Constitution that it had to end after 20 years because they were Christians. Well, actually, the Constitution did not establish a ban on the slave trade at all. The Constitution merely said that the slave trade, quote, shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. It allowed the possibility of ending the slave trade in 20 years, but it didn't end it or call for its end. The slave trade could, have been, could still be running today under the Constitution. They were just not allowed to get rid of it for 20 years. Another claim, right after the Declaration, the Continental Congress voted to purchase 20,000 copies of the Bible for the people of America. The fact is, the matter was tabled, and no finding They talked about it, but they didn't do it. Barton recently corrected this after letting it sit for 20 years. Another claim... In 1782, Congress voted to endorse and provide financial backing for the Aitken Bible. It's called the Aitken Bible because it's named after the guy who published it, a guy named Aitken, Robert Aitken. The fact is they endorsed it but provided no money. They endorsed it to benefit Aitken, not the Bible, because Aitken published all of their stuff. He was their publisher of the official documents and whatnot. And so, as a favor to him, they endorsed it, but they did not purchase any. They didn't provide any money. Earlier suggested versions, this is one of my favorites, earlier suggested versions of the First Amendment, more favorable to the Christian America case, make the real intent of Congress clear. So if you go back and look at some of the earlier versions, when they were creating what's now the First Amendment, some of the earlier versions are more favorable to Christianity. That's what they really wanted. So what they really wanted, they got rid of and did something else. If the earlier versions had expressed the real intent of Congress, they would have passed and become the First Amendment. What Congress really wants is what it rejects. Anybody can, can, anybody can enter a version into the record And they might be the only person in the whole group that wants it, the only person in the whole Congress. What they really intend is what the majority passes. And by the way, let me just throw this out there because I heard it again on the news last night all the time. When people make a big deal out of, and I I love the First Amendment, and I wish we would live by it, which we don't. Um, I love the First Amendment, but... People claim all the time that freedom of speech or freedom of religion was so important they made it the First Amendment. In reality, there were 12 amendments that were sent out for ratification. That one was the third of the 12. 
but the two ahead of it did not get ratified by the states, and so it became the First Amendment by default. It was not an intent that this is the most important thing, so it's the First Amendment. It just ended up the First Amendment because the two ahead of it didn't get ratified. One of which, one of those two, by the way, got ratified 208 years later. But anyway, it's the last most recent amendment to the Constitution. Claim. A study showed that the highest percentage of citations bring the fact from the 34% and another 60% can who used the Bible to write their conclusions. So 94% of the quotes of the founders were based on the Bible. Now, first of all, just look at that and just think about it just logically. What do you think are the odds that 94% of the quotes of the founding fathers were from the Bible? Well, I have the study here, by the way. You can look at it. Neither the 60% nor the 94% numbers were in the study at all. They're not there. The study is careful to note, quote, reprinted sermons accounted for almost three-fourths of the biblical citations, making the non-sermon source of biblical citations roughly 10%. Furthermore, the 94% claim is specifically made to show the Bible's influence on the Constitution. When he makes this claim, he's talking about the Bible's influence on the Constitution. The study specifically says, during the debate on the U.S. Constitution, the Bible's prominence disappears. The debate surrounding the adoption of the Constitution was fought out mainly in the context of Montesquieu, Blackstone, the English Whigs, and major writers of the Enlightenment, that is, rationalists. Even at that, the percentages are misleading themselves, misapplication, misuse, and misinterpretation of passages, that is, abuse of the Bible, are counted the same as proper use. So when someone used the Bible out of context to say something it didn't say, that counts for them as influence of the Bible. Satan quotes the Bible, but that doesn't indicate any righteousness or pity on his part. And he actually quotes it in better context, but anyway. Some of the abuse of the Bible. Let's look at some of the ways that they abuse the Bible. This is uh, during the Revolutionary Period. Colossians 2.21. Somebody look it up and read it for us real quick. Colossians 2.21. Drill. Who's got it? Read it, please. Loud, loud, loud. There you go. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That was, that was quoted in the, during the American Revolutionary Period in support of the, of the uh, boycott of tea. Boycott of the British tea. And by the way, in the context, he's saying, don't do this. Don't say, do not handle, because this is, anyway, that's another issue. Someone look up Exodus 1.8. I'll just tell you that one. So Exodus 1.8 said, And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That was applied to the king of England and the American colonists. 
Exodus or Judges 5.23. Somebody look that up real quick. Get it, Terry. All right, so when the Israelites were fighting the, the Canaanites, uh, the, the people of Meraz, which I don't even think anybody knows who they were, the people of Meraz did not come to help the, them fight against the Canaanites. And so that is applied to the loyalists during the American Revolution, that they are, they are Meraz, against England. Deuteronomy 26, 19 is quoted as prophetic of the United States. Uh, the books of Daniel and Revelation and their prophecies about the end times were used with England as the beast or the Antichrist, which is interesting because just a few years earlier during the French and Indian War, they used France as the beast. So whoever their opponent is, is the beast in Daniel and Revelation, and apparently Daniel and John were confused as to... Uh, who they applied to. They don't apply to the Antichrist. They apply to France. Well, no, England. Or who's tomorrow's opponent. We'll just make it apply there. So this is some of the ways that the Bible was used uh, back at that time. And these would all count for the influence of the Bible by the Christian America advocates. Most common, though, was quoting passages referring to spiritual liberty in support of demands for political liberty. These three passages in particular. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So my suggestion is there must, the Spirit of the Lord must not have been in the southern colonies. Um, this was applied to political liberty, but it's, of course, talking about spiritual liberty. It's talking about liberty from sin, freedom from sin and from Satan. Galatians 5, 1 and 13 are talking about freedom from the law. And in other words, spiritual liberty from the law. Those were applied also to political liberty. In John 8, 32, you've probably seen this. It's emblazoned over the doorways of certain Christian schools and whatnot. And it's also arguably the most abused sentence or phrase in all the Bible by politicians and whatnot. I'm going to do some passages that are abused. But anyway, John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And it's applied by everybody and anybody to whatever truth they, they want it to apply to. And, of course, it's talking about the truth of Christ. That will set you free from being, as verse 34, sin, not a slave of the king of England. So these are some examples of the abuse of Scripture that uh, are cited as good things. Then there's straight-up falsehoods. Some, there's a claim that the three branches of government and separation of powers are ideas that the founders took directly out of the Bible. The fact is there's no evidence for this claim. They did not mention the Bible as their source in the Constitutional Convention. We, you have the Constitutional Convention notes. You can read through the whole thing, or now it's online. You can just do a word search. They didn't mention the Bible as their source in the Constitutional Convention or in the Federalist Papers, 87 essays written by key founders 
to explain the things in the Constitution and the principles and where they came from and where they got the ideas. They didn't mention them either. They couldn't fit the Bible in in 87 papers. Instead, they mentioned Montesquieu, Baron Mont- Charles Secondot, Mont- Baron Montesquieu, a French philosopher, which is where they actually got the idea of separation of powers. They mentioned where they got the idea. Montesquieu is actually more than any other uh, in the Constitutional Convention. Another claim is the founders got their idea for tax exemption of churches from Ezra 724. The fact is there's no evidence that this was the source. That doesn't, they didn't say that in the Constitutional Convention when they were writing up the Constitution. In McCulloch versus Maryland, an early court case, the reason given was that the power to tax is the power to destroy. And so to protect free exercise of religion, we won't tax churches. Because if you can tax churches, you can tax them out of existence. And we believe in free exercise of religion, and so we're not going to give this power. But they did not cite Ezra 724. There's no evidence for that. What happens with some of these things is people in the 1980s and 1990s look at passages of the Bible and say, hey, this relates to this as such. And so somebody thinks it's cool, and so they make it a claim that that's what they thought. Another claim, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention pointed to Elijah and David for examples of biblical principles that they wanted to establish in America. The fact is, this is simply not true. Neither Elijah nor David was notes from the convention, nor were biblical principles. Another claim, the first Congress based parts of the government on the Bible, often citing the Bible by name. They'd put it in the, this is the quote, they'd put it in the government with a statement that said, well, if it's in the Bible, that's what we want in our government. First of all, that doesn't even sound like the way they talked. But aside from that, they never did that. The only times I have the cop, I have a copy of the minutes of the first Congress. They never did that. The only times the Bible is mentioned in the minutes of the first Congress are requests from religious groups to protect new editions of the Bible from errors. False quotes. We talked a little bit about this last time, so if we nod off on a couple of these. Many of the quotes that you might receive in an email are bogus, including Madison on the Ten Commandments, Franklin on spreading the principles of Christianity, Jefferson extolling Christianity, and Patrick Henry on a Christian founding. Those are all bogus quotes. David Barton was forced to admit that these quotes were bogus on his website. I don't know if it's still there or not. That's where it was. But there are others. They're good at creating quotes. On page 120 of the Myth of Separation by David Barton, James Madison is quoted as saying, quote, religion, dot, 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 is the basis and foundation of government, end quote. Now, first of all, for those who weren't here last week, ellipses are critically important to the Christian America advocates. Take their case without ellipses. What are ellipses? The little dots that tell you that something is missing, that they've cut something. And ellipses are a perfectly good tool. There's nothing wrong with ellipses, as long as you follow the fundamental rule about ellipses use, which is you don't use ellipses to change the meaning of the statement. But they do it all the time. They use ellipses to change the meaning of the statement. You cut out what's inconvenient for your, for your cause, 
and piece it back together to make something that is convenient for your cause. So here uh, he takes a, a chunk of thing, and you're going to see in a minute how much, out in order to piece together this quote. Here's what Madison actually said. And you can see that religion is the basis and foundation of government. Now, in reality, he's not saying that religion is the basis and foundation of government at all. He's talking about the Declaration of Rights in Virginia. That's the basis basis and foundation of government. So you make your statement, you create a quote by cutting things out that don't fit. By the way, they could have Thomas Jefferson. He was really good at that. Here's another one. The claim is that Benjamin Rush had a dream which he said came from the Holy Spirit in which he predicted that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would die on the same day on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration. Now, the interesting thing is John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did die on the same day, and it was the 50th anniversary of the, of the Declaration. I actually got on David uh, Dennis Prager's show once by calling in with that piece of information that he didn't know. So the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, 1776, was the day that both Adams and Jefferson, the two primary authors of it, died. Uh, Jefferson, or Adams died first and said, well, at least Jefferson still lives. And that was for like three more hours. Um, so it's an interesting thing. But Benjamin Rush did have a dream, and he did dream about the two of them dying, and so on and so forth. But that isn't what he dreamed. And I have the dream here for anybody who wants to see. That's why I have this folder up here, just in case people don't think I'm telling you the truth. Rush did not attribute his dream to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit at all in his account of the dream. And he did not predict they would die on the same day, much less specifically that day. He just said they would die near to each other in the the near time. I forgot the exact phrase, but it wasn't a specific. They weren't the same day and certainly not that particular day. Quotes out of context. Here's a quote as presented. We saw this one last week. John Adams said, The general principles on which the founders achieved independence were dot, 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 the general principles of Christianity. Here's what he actually said. He said, He listed the types of men who brought about independence, including Roman Catholics, Universalists, Arians, Socinians, Deists, Atheists, and Protestants who believed nothing. Then said, The general principles on which the founders achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young men could unite. And what were these principles? I answered the general principles of Christianity in which all those sects were united. Now, what are principles in which atheists, Socinians, who believe Jesus was just a man, Jesus was created by God as a higher being, universalists who believe everybody goes to heaven, and Protestants who believe nothing, what are principles in which they all agree? Well, it ain't biblical principles. It ain't real Christianity principles. It is the principles of morality. That's what it's all about. When he, meet, when he talks about Christianity, he means morality. That's what he means. But the Christian America people talk to people like you in churches 
who know what Christianity is from the biblical perspective, and they use these terms, and they don't tell you he doesn't mean Christianity, that he only means morality. Adams went on to claim that he could fill sheets of quotations in favor of these principles with statements from a number of well-known sources, including two very notorious atheists, David Hume and Voltaire. What did they mean? That's a huge issue. What did they mean? Christian America advocates take the use of the words Christian or Christianity at face value and quote them to evangelical born-again Christians despite the fact that the person being quoted meant something entirely different than the audience understands by those terms, which is what I'm explaining to you now. Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, and others had their own definitions of Christianity, which rejected virtually all of the core doctrines of Christianity. We talked about some of that last week. What about Blaine? So there's a letter from Sharp loves to carry this to churches because he has an original copy that someone gave him. He has millions of dollars worth of original documents. But anyway, someone gave him an original copy, so he's got it nicely laminated and everything, and he carries it to churches, and he loves to read off it to show them that he's reading from the original document. And this is what he said, and this is what he does. A portion of the 1809 letter is read in which Adams says glowing, John Adams says glowing things about the Holy Spirit, concluding with this. There is no authority, civil or religious. There can be no legitimate government, but what is administered by this Holy Ghost. Wow. No legitimate government unless the Holy Spirit is administering it? What a great thing. Now, those of you who were here last week to know what John Adams thought about the Trinity will immediately question this, and you'll question it anyway because we read the same thing last week. So what's the deal here? Well, it's what he leaves out again. He reads that portion of the 1809 letter, which, by the way, I have the 1809 letter here too. Right after the rapturous statements about the Holy Spirit, Adam says, although this is all artifice and cunning, yet they all believe it so sincerely that they would lay down their lives under the axe or the fiery faggot for it. Alas, poor, weak, ignorant, dupe human nature. Do you wonder that Voltaire and Paine, who were notorious infidels, they, Christians, believe this silliness about the Holy Spirit, those weak, ignorant dupes. He then asks Rush to burn the letter. I talked about this last week. Uh, Franklin, or excuse me, Jefferson and Adams and some others would sometimes ask when they sent somebody one of these letters that said what they really believed, they would then destroy it. Or Jefferson once went to the funeral of a friend of his in order to get his letter that he had sent to the guy back from the guy's wife so it wouldn't get out and be made public. They were politicians, and what they said privately was very different from what they said publicly because they were politicians. I know that's hard for you to believe in today's world, <laughs> that a politician wouldn't be upfront in public. But that's the way it was back then. Another claim, by law, this is, uh, David Barton wrote a book trying to sort of sanctify Thomas Jefferson. Um, 
By law, Jefferson was not allowed to free his slaves until death, Parton claims. And then he gives the 1782 Virginia law on emancipation. And here's what he, what he says from it. Those persons who are disposed to emancipate their slaves may be empowered so to do and dot, 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 it shall hereafter be lawful for any person by or his or her last will and testament, dot, 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 to emancipate and set free his slaves. Well, Jefferson couldn't free his slaves until death because the Virginia law wouldn't allow it, except for the parts that you cut out with your dot, dot, dots. The actual text of the law says, and the yellow part is what he cut out, he can do this by at death and so forth, or by any other instrument in writing under his or her hand and seal attested and proved in the county offices or acknowledged by the party in the court of the county where he or she resides. In other words, you can do it in your last will and testament, or you can just do it. <laughs> and for David Barton, that means he, he couldn't do it. Another claim, in his 1776 Notes on Religion, Jefferson says, quote, the Apostles' Creed contains everything. Again, what's interesting and what's important is what's cut. The fact is Jefferson is not expressing his own views in the Notes on Religion. He is giving in encyclopedic fashion the summaries of what others believe. He's got he has categories, and then he says, Locke believes this, and this guy believes this, and so on and so forth. And that's, this is one of those, and he's talking about what John Locke believes, or what John Locke says. Anyway, it's complicated, but here we go. He's giving in encyclopedic fashion summaries of what others believe. Before the statement on the Apostles' Creed, Jefferson begins, Locke's system of Christianity is this. So he's not expressing his own view, He's saying this is what Locke says. But even in the case of Locke, the actual statement is not personal. It's not even what Locke believed. The actual statement is the Apostles' Creed, but the statement by Locke is the Apostles' Creed was by them taken to contain all things necessary to salvation. And the them in the context refers to the people that they were written to. So Locke himself, I have that, I have that document as well. Locke himself says that, he, the, that he, what he's saying is the people that the creed was sent to believed it, not that he believed it or that Jefferson believed it. Early pronouncements. A favorite court case uh, for them to cite is Runkel versus Weinmiller in 1796, which, by the way, is a state court case and therefore has no relevance, in which a Maryland judge declared that America was a Christian nation. Now, whatever, what else happened around that same time? He established a treaty with Tripoli called the U.S. Treaty of Tripoli, or excuse me, with the, uh, the pirates called the U.S. Treaty of Tripoli. In that statement, it says this, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. This was ratified in the Senate without a single dissenting vote, without protest, and signed by President Adams and two signers of the constitutional, two signers of the Constitution who attended the Constitutional Convention. And treaties are part of the supreme law of the land under the Constitution. So according to the supreme law of the land, 
the United States officially was not in any sense founded on the Christian religion as established by the Senate back then. So you can pick which one of those you think is more relevant. The opinion of a Maryland judge or official statement from the U.S. Senate. What about ministers in the revolution? Well, another favorite thing to talk about is all the ministers who supported the revolution. The black-robed regiment is the way it's talked about all the time. Um, and there were a number of ministers who supported the American Revolution. And I wrote my second book about this issue, the ministers and the revolution and whatnot, although in the first book I also get into ministers for a reason we'll talk about in a moment. So the claim is ministers played a prominent role in promoting the American Revolution. This shows that the revolution was Christian and biblical. Now, the problem with that and the ministry and what they seminaries and what they believe, you may not know, but Yale was, or excuse me, uh, Harvard was the primary seminary, you might know that, primary seminary at the time, but you might not know why Yale was started. Yale was started because of complaints from denominations, from congregations of people, rather, that their ministers didn't know the gospel and didn't believe the gospel and were preaching enlightenment rationalism. And so enough congregations complained that a group of guys started Yale. That's, what it, that's what, how it began. And within 15 years, Yale went down the tubes too. They were not preaching the gospel. They weren't teaching the gospel. They were teaching enlightenment rationalism. And these ministers didn't believe the gospel. And I have whole sections of, of quotes from them in which they explicitly state that. So, minister support does not equal Christian or biblical support, first of all. It's irrelevant for biblical support. Secondly, most of these ministers were not Christians. Jonathan Mayhew, Charles Chauncey, John Wise, Samuel Cook, Samuel Cooper, uh, these are just some of the um, ministers who were anything but Christian. Clearly, rebellion is wrong. So if you're looking for a biblical view of revolution, you don't have to go very far. Romans 13.2 is exceedingly clear. As other people, such as, as I said, the Apostle Paul, John MacArthur, who if you read his commentary on the book of Romans and you look at Romans 13.2, you'll find what I just said. Uh, John Calvin, despite the fact that he is slandered by people as supposedly supporting revolution, John Calvin was so adamantly opposed to it, he said, if you believe this, your reasoning is stupid. He literally said that. He said about eight clear statements against revolution. Some Calvinists, some, some followers of Calvin, um, namely Theodore Beza in particular, uh, this weapon said, and turned it into a support for revolution. So in whom do you have more confidence in determining whether the revolution is Christian and biblical? The Apostle Paul or these ministers? John MacArthur or Jonathan Mayhew? You don't know him, but you don't want to. John Calvin or Charles Chauncey, who, by the way, was a universalist and so started American universalism and whatnot. So the fact that ministers of it doesn't tell us a whole lot. The, often their definitions are American rather than Christian. For example, here's a claim. The first characteristic of a true Christian nation is that it zealously guards an elective Republican form of government and rejects a theocratic or autocratic one. What is the, where does the Bible say that? In Christ's kingdom, it will be both theocratic and autocratic. It won't be a Christian nation. 
It's not going to be a republic. We aren't going to vote on things. The Mosaic Commonwealth wasn't a republic. It was theocratic and autocratic, as was the nation Israel later. So what I argue that the religious side created this phrase, theistic rationalism. They fundamentally uh, believed in rationalism, but they were raised in a Christian context, Christendom, and so they were influenced by Christianity. Then they studied Enlightenment rationalism. They took things from Christianity. They took things from Enlightenment rationalism and pieced together a religious belief system based on what they thought was rational based on what they thought was rational. And they discovered what was irrational, what didn't make sense to them, and created their own belief system. They were theistic, not deistic. They believed in a present God who was active in the universe. Um, But reason or rationalism was the trump card, whatever conflicts. They believed that, by the way, that Christianity and Enlightenment rationalism will take you to but at certain times, they'll veer off and separate. And when they separate, then you go with reason. You go with rationalism. On the back of your handout is uh, the principles of theistic rationalism, what they believed, and what they, uh, how they relate to Christianity and to deism. Um, and uh, to read more on this, you can get my book, uh, Religious Beliefs of Americans Founders, or you can get the book at the bottom, The Search for Christian America, which is out of print. That's what the OP means, but you can get it at used bookstores easily. In between, if you have homeschoolers, if you're a homeschooler, people ask me for years and years, what do I advise for those for American history for homeschooling? And I never had an answer other than to, I would tell them, use book site and find an American history book that was written before 1980. Because before 1980, we just learned history. We didn't learn leftist history or rightist history. We just learned history. But now I can recommend one because BJU Press actually asked me to be the content editor for this book. Their 11th grade American history book, American Republic. And I spent a year going through all of, the, of their stuff and whatnot. They didn't, I don't think, take everything that I said, but at least it's pretty good. Uh, and then another one, In God We Don't Trust by David Burko. I recommend that, especially for homeschoolers, about the American Revolution. Um, okay, I'm open up for questions. Questions, that's good. Uh, oh, just in general, not a single founder said that they intended to create a Christian nation. Now, you don't have to take my word for it, because just think about it. If they had, you would know it already, because it would be emblazoned on the walls and doorways of every Christian school in America. But it isn't there because none of them did. None of them said that. No one claimed that. Um, David Barton is not a historian. He has a bachelor's degree in Christian education from Oral Roberts University. That's it. He is, he's an apologist. He's a cultural warrior, but he's not a historian. His book on Thomas Jefferson, uh, World Magazine asked me to review it, and so I did, and then he and I went back and forth for two or three issues of World Magazine, uh, him responding to my criticisms and whatnot. And what it came out at the end is um, he criticized my review because it wasn't helpful in the culture war. 
Uh, and I just responded, that's because history doesn't support what you want, but that's what history is. And he's, he's a culture warrior, not a historian. And so he, 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 he and others, I shouldn't just pick on him, he and others who promote the Christian America thing, they look down their nose at people like me who have advanced degrees because they think, they don't know because they've never been there, but they think that graduate schools teach you to hate America, which a lot of them do now, but teach you to believe that America is rank secular, deist, and so on. They teach you, they don't care about this issue. They don't teach people about secularism and deism and whatnot because they don't care about them. What they do teach is how to do history, how to look at sources that are reliable and sources that aren't reliable, to be able to reject things that Parson Weems says as opposed to other things that can be supported, and how to treat sources, and how to not use ellipses to change the meanings of things, and so on and so forth. That's what's taught in graduate school. They don't teach you a whole lot of substance. They teach you how to study history, and how to properly cite things, and how to be intellectually honest, and whatnot. Um, and he doesn't understand any of that because he, 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 he's not a historian and, and neither are the others. So we talked last week about um, those who, who uh, promote this. Um, okay, so let's get to the handout. This is what some of you really cared about, so we went through all of this just to get to here. Why does it matter today? Why did Dr. MacArthur want me to talk to people at Grace Church? And it is this handout, which I told you he asked for a copy of when we were uh, talking. Why does it matter? Why is the Christian America view dangerous? First of all, it is theologically wrong. In the church age, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. God doesn't use earthly nations as his primary tool for doing his work. Rather, the church is his primary tool, which he says, I have made you a people for my own possession, a holy nation. God has made the church a holy nation. That's the nation that he works through, not particular nations. Now, he's sovereign, and so what happens in all the nations, he controls, but he's not specifically uh, doing his will and his plan uh, through everything that those nations do, and he's not doing it because he blesses those nations or prefers those nations. Sparta had one of the most ungodly, horrific cultures in world history, and they lasted 800 years. Because God uses the unholy and the wicked just as he does the holy and the righteous to do his work. In the church age, he's using the church, which is his holy nation and his people. Secondly, it's historically inaccurate, and Christians should base our on truth, not on myths or history as we wish it had been. You're more likely to be influential with people if you speak real history than if you speak made-up history that they can easily show isn't correct, then why should they listen to you? We talked about this last week, too. The difference between popular history and actual history. There's popular history, history as we all know it, like the first Thanksgiving, which didn't happen in reality. But we all know it was because someone in the 1800s invented it and thought it was a cool idea. And so, anyway, there's a difference between popular history and real history. 
and uh, that's what we bump into here. Third, it tarnishes or taints the word of God by designating a mixture of Christian and non-Christian influences as simply Christian, biblical, or Judeo-Christian, we attach the authority and reputation of the inerrant, infallible word of God to a hybrid mixture of biblical and non-biblical influences. To say that the Constitution was biblical and based on the Bible now attaches the Bible to the U.S. Constitution. Four, it cheapens and corrupts the gospel, identifying merely religious, decent, generous, moral people as Christians makes the gospel one of moral behavior and pronouncements rather than the saving work of Christ and personal commitment to him. Five, it exalts what God hates. Scripture clearly teaches that God hates generalizing religion worse than lack of religion. You ever remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees about something? While the founders were religious, they weren't rank secularists like the left says. They were religious. They were not, as a rule, distinctively Christian. Some of them were, but not the most influential ones. And by the way, um, they were religious, um, not rank secularists. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, six, it causes believers to confuse their cultural heritage with biblical Christianity. Many lose the ability to distinguish what is truly biblical from what is merely American tradition. They, in fact, worship the tribal God of America rather than the transcendent God of the Bible. Seven, it reduces the Bible to a mere tool or servant of a political agenda. According to the Christian America view, proper use or interpretation of Scripture is not important. What is important is counting how many times it's quoted. It idolatrously places confidence in processes and institutions rather than the sovereign God. Belief that the political system was originally Christian and biblical focuses on or directs efforts toward correcting the political system and misdirects the resources of the church. If we could just elect the right people, then we could solve our problems. That is what Jesus said in John 3.17. He said the problem was men are evil and they love the darkness. That's the problem. It's not that we need just the right Supreme Court judge, although I want the right Supreme Court judge. It's not that we elect just the right people to Congress, although I want the right people in Congress, but where is your trust? Is your trust in the system? Is your trust in the Supreme Court, or is your trust in God? Nine, it accelerates the process of secularization in society when believers fail to maintain an independent scriptural position by which to judge and evaluate the culture. The most important way to stem the tide of secularization is co-opted and thus rendered impotent. When Christians making these types of claims become political operatives, running political campaigns, David Barton is a political leader in Texas, and he's also uh, working with um, uh, Ted Cruz as as a top advisor. When you get involved in the political process and you bring claims like this to it, then you have co-opted scripture and, the, and Christianity. 
10, it obscures the principle of evaluating true Christianity by the fruit it produces rather than simply on the basis of claiming national idolatry and national self-righteousness. The naturalistic political ideals of the nation are treated as if they were on a par with scriptural revelation. Uh, and a, famous, a favorite tactic is quoting Old Testament passages about Israel and God's special relationship with them, quoting them as if they apply to America. And you've all heard one of them, the one in Chronicles, right? If my people, that is not a general reference. That is a reference to Israel. And it's not referring to a nation. My people is not Americans. 12, it emphasizes redeeming the world system rather than redeeming people. Important. Grace Community Church know the truth in this area uh, and reasons that I think as well. All right, questions? I, get, I guess wait for the mic, I guess. A little bit of a hard question to formulate, but you, you mentioned that most of them assumed the biblical morality. Do you see any evidence that they were trying to, uh, or they assumed that that morality was the highest morality or that they were trying to protect it? Uh, looking forward, would they, have, would they have assumed that if religious sentiments change, then the country can completely change uh, as it is now? What, what would you, maybe that's a hard no, thing they to... No, specific, they specifically talked about the fact that all religions teach morality, and that's why they didn't. That's why they allowed religious freedom. But, but did they assume a biblical morality, though, as opposed to a Hindu morality or a pagan morality? No. In fact, we had some quotes last week in which, in which John Adams said, for example, that the Shastra, which is a Hindu text, was as, as good a theology as Priestley's, which is a guy that he believed he agreed with, who was supposedly a Christian preacher. So the Hindu, Hindu philosophy was just as good as Christian Philosophy. Also, the laws of Zeleucus, which is an ancient Greek uh, system, which was supposedly handed down by the goddess Athena. That was just as good, too. All right. Hello. You had mentioned earlier that um, freedom of religion became part of the First Amendment by default yes. to two previous or two amendments. Do you know which one's? Or which freedoms, those two? Yeah, one of them is now the 27th Amendment to the Constitution uh, was dropped back in 208 years People in late, years later when people got upset with uh, uh, Congress's salary raises. So the, the 28th or 27th Amendment rather says that uh, salary cannot be increased, salaries of Congress cannot be increased until after the next election. Now, they were concerned about that in the beginning because they didn't expect people to stay in Congress over and over and over again. They expected them to serve one or two terms and then leave and go back home and do something instructive. And so if you passed a salary rate in effect till the next election, it wouldn't apply to you. That's why they wanted it. So that was one of them. The other one was to change the number of people that are representative represented. Under the original Constitution, uh, members of uh, the Congress and the House of Representatives represented 30,000 people. For every 30,000 people, they would bring a new chair in and, and put it in the House, and the, the amendment would change it to 40,000 people. That one never got ratified. Where's the mic? Okay. I have it all. Two questions. 
No. Okay, go ahead. It's okay. I might, I, might have, I might have missed something. Though. Who, who brought the gospel to this land? And second, in Romans chapter 13, uh, is Roman, do you believe that Romans chapter 13 is saying that the government have the right to do anything it wants to people and people should never revoke to that? Yes. Because they was put here, they was put to actually do God's purpose, but not to to be evil against people or law-abiding or, you know. Yes to the second thing you said, not the first thing. I don't think it says, I don't think it says that the government can do whatever it wants, but I do think it says that people can't revolt one way or another. Never Even revolt. if the government doesn't do what it's not supposed to do. Okay. So, and you can, but, and I'm not, I, okay. you can look at John MacArthur's commentary yeah. on Romans, that's what he but says I'm saying too. They, they, and during Hitler time, they used Romans chapter 13, people, the Christian was saying, do this, do this, but yet, we see what happened. Yeah, actually they didn't, but that's the thing that gets passed around that they did. They didn't care what Romans 13 said. But anyway, even if they did, John MacArthur specifically says in his commentary on Romans that it applies under Hitler and Stalin and so on as well. You can look it up. I'm not the only one. John MacArthur's not infallible. He's not an apostle. But in this church, you can't. I, I can shorten the answer to the question by saying John says this. I can, I can do a longer answer to the question, but I'm trying to get multiple he things. He did another sermon in 2020. He changed it. No, not to, not to support revolution. Not to support Actually, they cannot do what they want to do. Right. You but know, you should disobey, yeah. which is what Paul is okay with. You can disobey, but disobeying and revolting are two different things. That's why Daniel ended up in the, in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up in the fiery furnace and why Paul wrote some of his epistles from prison because they disagreed but recognized the authority over them and took punishment. They didn't rebel. Hello. Was uh, that both your questions? Uh, I, I do like what he said. I think he said something about um, who, who brought the gospel to, to America. Oh, yeah. But I just wanted to ask if there's anything, any merit to this thinking of uh, in the early stages of this country, the founding of the nation, uh, surely there was a significant component of it was the Christian faith. And let's say, so the nation was blessed as a result. Contrast with today, there seems to have been this outright rejection of God and a, and a clear kind of a judgment, and clearly we're in decay. Uh, Pastor John, I think, is very clear about he's, he thinks that we're under the wrath of abandonment. So, Mike, is there any merit to that? Maybe that's different from what you're saying because the founding forefathers specifically are not the, the nation, and so, uh, <laughs> yeah, the point is that, am I making any sense with that? Is there some merit to this country was founded significantly Christian, therefore blessed, and now is not, and therefore cursed? Uh, I don't think there's legitimacy to saying that the a, a nation, any nation, let's, this one or any other, uh, was significantly Christian and therefore blessed because God has blessed a lot of non, non-Christian nations. It's according to God's plan who gets blessed. God blessed the Assyrians to come in and wipe out his people, Israel. God blessed the Babylonians to come and take his people, and it, it all depends on what God's plan is. He blessed the Spartans for 800 years, and they had the most ungodly culture you could possibly imagine. So God blesses nations based on his plan of history, and nations rise and fall by his plan in history. But were there... Was there a, a, a sense of Christendom 
in early America, yes, there was, but you had the same thing in, in Europe. They had a sense of Christendom, too, in which they, they, they knew the Bible because it was the only book that everybody had, and that's why they made references to it periodically and gave, drew illustrations from it and whatnot. And so, but I would argue that today we have a whole lot of people in America who are Christian-like. There's, I can speak of certain portions of the country. I won't mention them by specifics, but one would remain the South, in which most people think they're Christians, but they're not Christians. They have a, a sense of Christianity, and they have some notions of what's moral and good and what the Bible says and whatnot, but they have never, they have never been born again. They haven't, become, they haven't become believers in Jesus Christ. They go to church because that's where their friends are, and they hear nice sermons in which no one opens the Bible, um, but that's all part, and that's been there all the way from the beginning of American history. Yes, there's been that at the beginning as well, although church attendance was pretty low in the founding era, but that's another issue. Um, but that doesn't make it Christian. It, there's, there are Christians... But it doesn't make the nation Christian, I would argue. I was going to say, I, I think the argument that you make in the beginning about the left and the right, <clears throat> where there's parts of it that may be true about the right, I, I think most people on the right that are born-again Christians are aware that, look, all the soldiers, uh, all the leaders, many or maybe most were not born again. But when they say, when they talk about America being founded uh, with these values, I think they're talking about Judeo-Christian values as opposed to saying, well, everybody was saved. I don't think anyone is saying that. Um, Well, maybe there's a few, but I think most people are saying, look, the the nation was founded by Judeo-Christian values, meaning the Ten Commandments was sort of a loose basis for the laws of this country. Um, which is two? not the same as saying, obviously, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. What are the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments? <clears throat> the first two commandments? Yeah, what are the first two commandments? We always talk about the Ten Commandments. And what we're always talking about is don't steal, don't kill. But we're skipping the very first two. Okay, but... Which what? is, there is one God, right. and this is the only God that can be worshipped, and so on and so forth. Is that what the way they set it, set it up? I, I, but... I think the people that came here to America uh, were not primarily Muslim. They were not primarily Buddhist. They were not primarily, uh, you know, these some of these other. I, I think they were primarily people that maybe incorrectly, right? But they but they primarily worshipped the Judeo the, the Judeo Christian God, and they wanted that freedom to 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 worship in a way where they didn't have to bow to the monarch of England. I would correct that. They did not worship the yes. Judeo-Christian God. They worshiped their version. Yes, yes. Not, that, not, that, that, that's why I said they maybe... They didn't worship inc- the God of the Bible. May, may, yes. Uh, I mean... Okay, they, let me shorten right. it. So, so, no disagreement there. Because, because many, maybe many or maybe most were not truly saved. Correct. And you're actually making so. my point when you're saying that they believe in Judeo-Christian principles and the Ten yes. Commandments. That's my point. Moral, no. Morals, that's what they were interested in. The, yes. the, the moral yes. teachings yes. of Jesus, the moral right. teachings of the Bible. Right. As, as opposed to the correct teaching where, you know, you accept, the, as a sinner, so you accept. So it's not the, Christianity. But, but, but I don't think, I, I guess my point is, I don't think the right is claiming that everybody was saved. I think the right is claiming no, that it was. No, but they're claiming the Bible, right. the Constitution right. was based on the Bible, 
and biblical principles, and they're claiming that the key founders who set up the system were Christians and intended to create a Christian nation. I, I believe they are, they, they, if, you, if the Constitution talks about a creator and those rights, and that our Everybody nation... Everybody believed in a creator then. That was and, before Darwin. And, 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 our nation was, and our nation is unique because... The because because these rights, for example, that we had were given by God as opposed to given by a monarch. Okay, so that's another yes. problem. They believe that uh, James Madison said that everybody was given a right to worship him however they wanted. Is that true? There's millions and billions of people in hell because they worship God incorrectly. They don't have a right to worship God however they choose. Christianity doesn't, doesn't believe that. That's not what Christianity is about. We don't get to decide how we want to worship God. That's why, that's why Samuel's two sons were zapped when they, when, they created, when they used strange fire to worship. People go to hell because they worship God incorrectly. That's not a Christian view. They believed in moral principles. And they believed that all of them, as I was telling the gentleman over here, they believed the Hindu ones and the ancient Greek ones were just as good as the Christian ones. It was just the moral principle. That isn't the point. It isn't the point. They didn't say that the Hindus, they said that those principles of the Hindus were just as good as these. That's what John Adams said. Yes. Uh, could you speak just real quickly? I, I thank you very much for your presentation for the last couple of weeks. It's been very, very good. I wanted to find out what is the Christian's responsibility then to be salt and light in the world? First Peter does say that we are that holy nation and we are to proclaim his excellencies. And I believe in every area of life. So we should influence the politics. We should uh, the media and not leave them to the secular people. We should infl- we realize that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. The primary way to impact this world for Christ is by individual lives and impacting and changing lives from in- the inside out. Which is and what that's Jesus- only going to happen to some people. But what is our responsibility, salt and light? Which is what Jesus meant when he talked about salt and light. He didn't speak about salt and light in a political pa- passage. He spoke about it in terms of our lives that mm-hmm. we show to people around us. And that's the context of 1 Peter 2 as well. When, Jesus, when Paul sa- uh, Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that when they see you, they have to slander you in order to see anything wrong. Okay. And so, yes, we should be involved in all various areas of life. And, and, and if you want to be involved... I, I teach political studies. That's what I teach. So if I, I am not saying you shouldn't be involved in politics. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that you should be involved in politics as a believer and that your ultimate right. faith and your ultimate confidence is in God, not in the political system. We can do what we can to change the morals of society, mostly by living moral lives in front of our friends who see us all the time and they say, wow, there's something different about this guy. That's what Titus talks about, or Paul talks about in Titus. Uh, three is to be a soul of Christ. So we should be involved in political, if that's what you like. If you're involved in politics, you should be involved in that. If you're involved in sports, you should be involved in that. If you're involved in whatever, you should be, and you should be a Christian in that environment, and you should push for 
what the Bible teaches and what God would have people do. And get out and vote. And publish the truth when vote. the media tells lies. We still need to publish the truth to the people. Yes. Yes, the church resources are not to be put for this. But I think we do need to be salt and light in every area and yes. proclaim his excellencies in every area. Yes, but if you, give more, if you give more money to a political party than you do to the church, you need to make a reevaluation. Agreed. Thank you very much. Okay. I got, we, we got a couple more here. I've, we're past time, so if you want to leave, you can. Hi, Greg. I was just wondering, why do our presidents put their hand on a Bible when they're sworn in? When uh, George Washington was sworn in as president, he brought his family Bible and he put his hand on it. It's in the law. It it's beca- became a practice, a custom from when he did that. And so it's a common practice. Not every president has done it, but most of them have. And it's, okay, I'm being cynical again. It's designed to show that you believe in God, and it, it's a, it has political purpose. Because most people believe in God. And so this is an easy way for you to believe in God. Amen. Maybe he was very sincere about it, but knowing what he... No, probably not. Right here, she had a question. Did the founders use the Mayflower Compact to influence them in writing the Constitution? Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. Yeah, that's what I read. (laughs) Again, we have the notes of the Constitutional Convention. And by the way, they're they're online. You can pull up the text and then do a word search. Word search Mayflower in the Constitutional Convention notes. Um... And, it, and just stay there because you, you can go on and do some, some other search because you won't come up with anything. Yes, there are elements of the whole thing. And by the way, let me recommend a book. If you are interested in the pilgrims and what actually happened, this book is entirely based on their own journals and so forth, okay? Uh, not the stories that were invented in the 1800s. Um, the book called They Knew They Were Pilgrims is interesting. You learn all kinds of interesting things, like them cutting off the heads of Indian chiefs and putting them on poles outside the camp and uh, interesting things like that. Um, they knew they were pilgrims. Actually, Christianity Today asked me a couple of years ago to be one of, the, uh, one of the four historians to evaluate their history book of the year. And they sent us four books, and two of them were horrendous, and two of them were excellent. And that was one of the excellent ones. So the other one that was, well, anyway. All right. Have a nice day.